Thank you, Andy. Awesome. Good job. It was a private joke between us. I, I told him early in the week I didn't expect much from him, but that's not true. That's, I told him if that was real, I wouldn't have said it. So, yeah. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here. Uh, my name is uh, Stephen Horde. Some of you know me. Uh, most of you, I don't know. I, I usually teach a class at this hour, so I'm usually in the second service. So a lot of you who are uh, you know, first service people, I, you don't know me, I don't know you, but, uh, well, and, and I usually solve that problem, uh, you know, not, not being well known or recognized, uh, because I just tell people that I'm Lana's husband and, uh, that usually suffices. And see, some of you, you got that, you know, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, I, I tell you guys a funny story. Uh, back, uh, when we first got married, uh, I was pastoring a church in West Texas and uh, Lana was uh, working at the college where we had graduated from. She was the alumni director. Now, I went to Howard Payne University, which you probably never, you may have never heard of, or you did her, maybe. Uh, anyway, uh, so uh, it just so happens that in that, that period of time, in the, in the late 80s, uh, there were a lot of well-known, uh, well, very, very well-known pastors and ministry-type leaders uh, in... Um, that had, were graduates of Howard Payne. So every year, Lana and I, while she was alumni, we would go to the uh, Baptist, the annual convention of Texas, the Baptist General Convention of Texas. We would go to the convention, and we would be walking through the convention hall, and uh, you, you're going to think I'm exaggerating, but this is the truth. Uh, I would see somebody that I recognized. I didn't know them, but they were well-known. They were famous, right? Some famous pastor, some famous preacher. And they would turn in our direction and their reaction every time was, Lana! And uh, they would run over there. I would get introduced and quickly forgotten because it was all about Lana. And uh, if you haven't met Lana, you need to meet her. She's a great lady. And uh, she's a joy of my life. And uh, Well, we are, in, are continuing our study in the book of Ruth. We are in chapter 4. Um, before we go directly into chapter 4... I want to kind of give a little bit of background and to touch on some things that will, that will be used to uh, highlight or emphasize what we're going to talk about in chapter 4. I believe that the book of Ruth is, uh, in all honesty, I think it is the most misunderstood uh, book in the Scriptures. And there, there is so much there. And the reason is, is because the book of Ruth is incredibly grounded in um, ancient Jewish culture. Okay? And, and in fact, when you first read the book of Ruth, you probably, you probably saw some things in there that you're like, I don't understand that. I don't know what they're doing there. In fact, it is so common in the book of Ruth that I, I, I jokingly say sometimes in the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth it should be called the book of inappropriate behavior. Because you get the idea as you read through it, if you just like, you know, give it a cursory read, you think, oh, there's a lot of things here that shouldn't be happening. You know, I, I remember, uh, you know, one of those things uh, is the, uh, you know, and I've heard this, say, I, I heard a pastor, a, a very well-known pastor that you could hear on the radio probably tomorrow morning if you so chose, uh, uh, very well-known. I heard him say one time, uh, that there was an inappropriate connection there because there was such a great age difference between Ruth and Boaz. Uh, this guy claimed that Boaz was probably about 65 years old and Ruth was about 15. Well, there's a big problem with that. 
The problem is, is that if you go back and you look at the text in chapter 1, uh, it very clearly tells us that after Ruth married one of Naomi's sons, that they were married for about 10 years before they returned to Bethlehem. And so, you know, I, we don't know exactly how old Ruth was, uh, but my guess is, my best guess, and it doesn't mean that it's gospel, I'm just telling you my opinion, I, I think she was probably in her late 20s, early 30s when they returned to Bethlehem. And of course, Boaz was nowhere 65, because when we're first introduced to Boaz in the text, uh, what you see there is Boaz is in the field working alongside of his servants. So, you know, I just turned 60 the other day, and I'm telling you right now, I ain't going to work in the field picking barley, <laughs> especially if I got people that I'm paying to do it. You know what I'm saying? So I, I believe, you know, uh, certainly there was an age difference uh, because Boaz, in fact, in chapter 3, he makes a reference to that. He said, he says to Ruth, you, you could have married a, a lot of younger men. You could have, you could have had a lot of younger men. Uh, so there was an age difference. Was it wildly inappropriate? No, not at all. Not at all. And then, of course, the other thing that you see as you, as you continue to read through, you get to the incident at the threshing floor. And that's full of all kinds of, of traps where we say, man, this guy, these people were, they, they were not godly people. Well, the truth was they were very godly people. Um, you know, one of the things that you see, and you'll often hear people talk about this, is that, well, Ruth, Ruth really did something inappropriate because she's the one who approached Boaz. Uh, and, and ask him to be the kinsman redeemer, to ask him basically to marry her. And you think, well, that's not, that's not done very often. But the truth is, and we won't go there to read it at this time, I'll just give you the reference. In Deuteronomy 25, when instructions are given about how a woman is to be redeemed who's died, who her husband has died without offspring, uh, it specifically says that she is to go to the kinsman redeemer, to go to the Goel and ask him to be her redeemer. And demand that he fulfill his obligation. So what Ruth did was nothing inappropriate. It wasn't out of the ordinary. It was exactly what was expected of her. Remember, Ruth was not a, a Jewish girl. She was from Moab. But her mother-in-law, Naomi, had grown up there in Bethlehem. She certainly knew what was required and what was expected of Ruth. And so when she sent her over there to do that, there's nothing inappropriate about it all. Of course, the big uh, elephant in the room when we're talking about inappropriate, possible inappropriate behavior is the incident at the, the, that night at the threshing floor when Ruth goes there. Remember, Boaz is asleep, and Naomi tells her exactly what to do. And Naomi says, listen, I need you to go down, go find Boaz asleep on the threshing floor and uncover his feet and lay down at his feet. Okay? That seems weird to us, but um, I don't think that I've ever had that happen to me, Lana. Just, just saying. Uh, but, but anyway, and then you remember he wakes up in the middle of the night. You know why he woke up, right? His feet were cold. I mean, let's be real. So he wakes up in the middle of the night, and he, in the dark, he, he sits up. The scripture says he sits up, and he says, who is that? And Ruth answers, and she says, it's your servant, Ruth, and I want to know if you will cover me with your cloak. Now, we, here, here's the problem, folks. We all look at things through our 21st century lens, right? And so we look at that, and we say, oh, yeah, she was basically saying, hey, let me, can I crawl up in the covers with you there, big boy, you know? But that wasn't what was happening. Because what she says, the word that's used there is the word shul. 
It's where we get our word shawl from. You know what a shawl is, right? You wear that over your shoulders. But what she was saying was, I want you to cover me with your shul. Now, what does that, what in the world? Ruth, what what are you talking about? What does that mean? Well, let me tell you something about the importance of the shul. In fact, if you ever want to do a very interesting study in the scriptures, go look at every time the hem of a garment or the hem of a shul is talked about. Okay? Uh, you'll be amazed at some things that you'll see there. But one of the things, well, what's going on is the shul, you would take the, sh- the shawl or the shul, the cloak, and you would embellish the hem of that. Um, you would embellish it with some, you know, maybe some fancy stitching or some uh, ribbon or different colored cloth. And what that was for was that was an indication, that was to signal to everyone the, the authority that you had. For instance, Boaz shul, and I don't know if it was decorated on the edge, but it indicated certainly to everyone in Bethlehem that Boaz was the leader of his clan, of his family. Okay? Let me give you some examples from the scripture that I, I think are very fascinating and very enlightening of what we're talking about. Do you remember back in 1 Samuel, I think it's 1 Samuel 20, let's see, I don't remember this exactly. Now, 1 Samuel 24. Again, we won't go there, but I'm going to just you know, write it down and go look at it later. You remember, David has been anointed king, but Saul is still king. David hasn't been put in the position of being the king yet. And so Saul thinks that David is there to stage a coup d'etat. He's there to take over the throne and kill him. And so he begins to pursue David. Well, there's a certain time when David flees into the south of Israel And uh, Saul takes 3,000 of his choice men, and he pursues David. And David and his guys, they realize that Saul's closing in. He's about to get him. So they go into a cave, and they hide in the dark recesses of the cave. Well, it just so happens, and this is kind of one of those funny stories in the Scriptures, but Saul's coming by with his 3,000 men, and I I don't know what exactly was said, but I think it was something like this. Hey, guys, y'all wait out here. I'm going to go in the cave. And the Scripture says he went in to relieve himself. Okay? Um, You can fill in that, the rest of that. But he goes in there, and what does he do? You got to kind of think through it. But what is is he prepares to relieve himself? He's going to take off his cloak, he's going to set it aside, and he's going to go over here and do his business. Well, the scripture says that David saw what was going on, and he crept up to where the cloak was, the shul, and he cut off a piece of the hem the edge of his garment. And went back in. Saul goes out. He, takes, he leaves with his men. David feels guilty about this. He thinks in some way I've disrespected Saul. He's the king. He's God's anointed. I don't want to do that. So he goes outside to, to Saul. He bows down. He says, listen, I got to confess something to you. I had your life in my hands. I could have killed you. But I want you to know that I'm not here to upstage you. I'm not here to, to you know, form a coup d'etat. I'm, I, I, I'm, as long as God's got you in this position, I'm going to stand in the background. That's okay. And to prove it, he pulls out this piece of the hem of Saul's garment. And he presents it to him. And he says, see, I could have, that's how close I was. I could have, instead of cutting your garment, I could have cut you, man. And so, then, uh, of course, Saul breaks down weeping and says, oh, you're a better man than I am. And, and then a few days later, he's trying to kill him again. But, uh, 
The, <laughs> but that's. But what did he do? He had that symbol of his of his authority. I don't know how the king's uh, cloak was decorated, but I, I'm sure he knew that. You know, and you remember, there's another incident. It's in Luke chapter eight. Do you remember when Jesus is passing through a crowd of people, and uh, this is the height of his popularity, and everyone's you know. There, you know, they're, they're, he's, it's the crowd's pressing in, the scripture says. And a woman who had a hemorrhage of blood for 12 years and could not be cured, the scripture says, could not be helped in any way, she came up behind him and she touched, what did she touch? She touched the hem of his garment. And you remember Jesus stopped and he said, Who touched me? Of course, Peter. <laughs> Peter has the answer, Lord. Come on, man. There's a hundred people here who touched you, and you say, who touched you? He said, no, no, but I felt power. You understand it this way, I felt authority go out of me. Why? Because the authority was, was signified by the hem of the garment. You remember, even in Jesus' day, the religious leaders, uh, the Scripture tells us that they, um, on the hems of their garments, they had little golden bells sewed on there. And they would walk through the marketplace. Why? Not so they could say, oh, there's, there's John. No, but so they could say, oh, that's a person of what? Of authority. And so when we go, let's go back to the threshing floor now. So when Ruth says to Boaz, would you cover me with your cloak? What she's saying is, would you cover me with your familial authority? Can I live under your protection, under your provision? And Boaz uh, agrees to that. Now let me show you one more thing. If you, and I hope you have your scriptures. Open them to the book of Ruth. I want to show you some things here. But if you will remember, the next morning when they wake up, now she, uh, the scripture indicates that she, he said, go back to sleep. We'll talk in the morning. And she, he covered her just like she asked with the cloak, with the shul. You get down to the end of chapter 3, they, they wake up in the morning and, Bo, and uh, Boaz says, listen, let's not say anything about this, but here's what we're going to do. He goes, yes, I am one of your kinsmen redeemer. I'm one of your, well, the word for that in Hebrew is the goel. I am a goel. But there is a goel who's first in line before me. I'm not the first one. I'm not the one that has the first right of, right of first refusal. And so he says to her, and I want you to notice that he says to her, he says, here, before you go back to Naomi, I want you to hold out the cloak. But it says it in an interesting way in the text. It says, I want you to hold out the cloak that is upon you. Now you could interpret that two ways, right? You could say, oh, that's the cloak that she had, her cloak. My understanding, my opinion is, that I think the cloak she had upon her was Boaz's cloak. She had asked him to cover her with it. He covered her that night with it. And he says, hold this out. And he measured out for her, it says very specifically, six measures of barley into the cloak. As Justin said last week, it's about 70 pounds of grain. Now, remember... Ruth is a Moabite girl. 
She doesn't understand all these intricacies of culture. But Boaz is sending a message to Naomi. He's sending a message with the symbol of my authority, I'm going to give you six measures of grain. Now, those of you who have been in my class on Sunday morning, we know that numbers mean something, right? We've been in the book of Revelation. It's full of numbers. Seven is the number of, oh my gosh, there's people from my class in here and this is bad. (laughs) Seven is the number of completion. Something is complete. It's finished. Six is the number of what? Incompletion. That's right. Something that's incomplete. So what's the message that Boaz is sending to Naomi? He's sending her a message. Here, I'm going to try to cover you with my authority. I'm going to try to exercise this, uh, this rule of, of being a, a, a goel for you guys. But it's incomplete. And the message must have worked because when you get to the end of the chapter, uh, Ruth goes back to Naomi and, and Ruth and Naomi says to Ruth, wait, hold on, don't be discouraged. Now, why would Ruth be discouraged? I want you to remember the last two things that Boaz said to her. Number one, he said to her when they woke up in the morning, I'm not your kinsman redeemer. I'm the second in line. And I got to go talk to this other guy to see if he'd be willing to redeem you. And the second, the last thing he said to her was, if you don't take these six measures of barley back to Naomi, you'll leave here empty-handed. You won't have anything to show for your, your efforts. And so Naomi must have received that message because she says to Ruth, when they're together, she says, Ruth, the man will not rest until he has completed this matter today. So she got the message. Now that brings us, that brings us to chapter 4 and verse 1. And let's just kind of read through it together. Um, And I'm reading from the New American Standard. I think we have ESV up here. Is that right? And yeah, it's okay. They're super close. Uh, But I'm going to read from the New American Standard. And uh, if you have your version of the scripture, just follow along. It says, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative, or the Goel, of, um, of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Goel, the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moaz, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. That was Naomi's deceased husband. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here. And before the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. I'm the next in line. And the guy says, I'll redeem it. I'll buy her land. I'll buy a Elimelech's field. And then Boaz says, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. And the closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I jeopardize my own inheritance. And I'll come back and explain that in a minute. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption. 
and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the, so the Goel said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon. And those are Elimelech and Naomi's sons who are dead. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased may not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace you are witnesses today. And all the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, from whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord shall give you by this young woman." All right. Now, so what's going on here? A couple of crazy things there that don't make sense to us, right? And so Boaz, when he, when he and Naomi, remember Naomi, I mean, I'm sorry, Ruth, Ruth leaves the threshing floor that morning. She goes to see Naomi. Where does Boaz go? He goes to the city gate. This is the place where all business is conducted, where agreements and contracts are ratified, uh, where uh, ex- uh, property is exchanged, uh, where legal matters, civil matters are, di- are, di- are disputed and settled by the city elders. And he gets there, and the first person he sees, I think, I think Boaz was probably the first person at the gate, because remember, he got up before sunrise with, with Ruth, and they both went their separate ways. I think he was the first person at the gate that morning. And he sees this guy, his relative, who is the, cl- who is the closer relative to uh, Naomi and Elimelech. And he says to him, listen, I need you here, sit down here. We've got some business to take care of. And then he finds 10 of the city's elders. He sits them down. We're gonna, I need you to witness the transaction that's about to take place. And he begins to question the guy. And he says, listen, you know who Naomi is. Says, sure, I know who Naomi is. Uh, she was, yeah, she came back from Moab. And she's got some land to sell. And uh, you have the opportunity to purchase that land. I wanted to let you know about that. And will you do it? And he says, sure, I'll do that. And then he, I, I don't know about this, if, he, if he's kind of like dr- dropping the bomb on the guy or something, but he says, listen, well, there's another, you know, codicil to this agreement. And that is that you remember she brought back with her one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, who's from Moab, and you get, you're going to have to marry her if you're going to redeem the land. And the guy says, oh, <laughs> wait a minute, I can't do that. Now, why? Why couldn't he do that? He says to us in the text here, he says, it will jeopardize my inheritance if I do that. Well, there's a reason. Because uh, <laughs> he, it, it's, it's against the law. I don't mean the legal law, but I mean the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant. It's against the law for a Jewish person to marry outside of their race. And that's not a, by the way, that's not a, um, a, a prejudice or anything based on, you know, ethnicity or, or background. No, it's based on that you're going to marry people who worship false gods. You're going to marry someone who worships another, another god. 
And so you've got you to marry people. And so this guy very well knew that. He knew that if he married a woman from Moab, that he would be in a position where he could possibly be uh, rejected from the community. He could, he could be shamed and ousted from the community. Now, here's the question. Some of you are already ahead of me. You're asking this question. Well, why didn't that apply to Boaz then? Anybody want to guess? Boaz had the opportunity to do that, to marry outside of the faith. And by the way, Ruth had been converted. You remember she declared to Naomi, your God will be my God. I'm going to become Jewish. But you know why that was open to Boaz? It wasn't open to this unnamed Goel. Boaz was only half Hebrew. You know who his mom was? Anybody? Come on now. It was Rahab. She was from Jericho. And so he had the opportunity. He, he wouldn't violate any laws if he, if he married uh, Ruth. So he does that. Well, okay, let's, let's keep going here. This is, this is even more interesting. And he says, uh, and so then the, uh, I lost myself here. Okay. So the guy gives him the, uh, yeah, this order. So the guy gives him the, you, you go ahead, you marry her. Now then this strange thing happens where this guy takes off his sandal and he gives it to Boaz. And I'm thinking, probably Boaz is thinking, look, I know what to do with the land. I know what to do with the woman. I don't know what to do with your shoe, you know. But, but then the scripture tells us, it gives us a, a bit of editorial comment. It says, this was a common practice in ancient times that when someone would uh, make an exchange of real property, they would give, take off their shoe and give it to someone. But it even goes deeper than that. Because if you were to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 25, there is the, the uh, method for which a person is to be named as a kinsman redeemer. And it says there in Deuteronomy 25, it says that the woman is supposed to go and speak to the person who is the goel and demand that he fulfill his obligation. And it says in Deuteronomy 25, if he says, no, I don't really want to do that. I'm not interested in doing that. That she is to then go to the elders of the city in the city gate and she's to say, listen, I went to my Goel and I told him of the need that I have and he's refused to do it. And so then it says the city elders are to call him in and before everybody and they're to question him and say, will you do this? And if he still refuses to do it, the scripture says, then she is to go to him in front of everyone. She's to take off his sandal spit in his face and tell him before everyone this shoe belongs to the man whose name from now on his family will be called the family of the unsandaled. I didn't make this up. Okay? And that mark is to travel with them throughout in perpetuity. Now I don't I I thought really this week long and hard I wonder I thought, do I know anybody who has a last name that could be construed as unsandaled or barefoot? Or I didn't know anybody. I don't know. You maybe you do, but but that's what was supposed to happen. Now I think <laughs> this guy. You notice uh, when he makes the agreement with Boaz, he voluntarily takes off his shoe. 
and gives it to Boaz. I'm wondering if that was just his way of avoiding a confrontation with Naomi, who's going to show up later and take his shoe and spit in his face and change his nice name. Right? I mean, you don't want that. None of us like confrontation, but you don't want that. And then the city elders do something that's really, if you don't, uh, you've got to look in the scriptures. This is amazing. They pronounce what we would say, we might say is four blessings over Boaz and Ruth after the deal's concluded. And the first thing they say to him, they say to him, look, uh, we, we hope, we bless you that this marriage to Ruth, that Ruth will be like Leah and like Rachel who built the house of Israel. Now, you remember who that was? That was Jacob or Israel's wives. And what's interesting about that is that, um, well, I'm going to come back to that later. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. So they say, may, your, may the Lord make your house like the house of, or make it like Leah and Rachel, who built the house of Israel. And then they say, may you be, become a very famous in Ephratah. Ephratah was like the county that Bethlehem was in. May you, may, may you become famous in the county. May your name become well known. And third, we pray that you'll, be, you'll become wealthy in Bethlehem. You'll, you'll just receive an incredible wealth blessing. But then they say the fourth thing that they pronounce over him is not a blessing. In fact, if someone said this to you, you would say, hey, back at you, fella. Don't talk to me like that. Because they say, may your, the offspring from you and Ruth, may it be like Perez of Tamar. Anybody remember who Tamar was? Well, let me remind you. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons. One of them was named Judah. Judah had three sons. And his oldest son, when he became marrying age, he married a woman named Tamar. That son died. Now, this is a family-friendly gathering, and I'm not going to tell you why God killed him, but it was because he wouldn't allow himself to produce children with Tamar. And this, this made God so angry that he took his life. And so, following the law of redemption, uh, Judah took his second son and gave Tamar to him. They were married. And this guy did basically the same thing. If you read the text, uh, you'll find out that he, um, it's even more graphic of a description of why God killed him. We know why God killed this guy. Because again, he prevented children with Tamar. He prevented himself from, uh, you know, having children with Tamar. God took his life. So Judah has a third son. Now he's evidently a little bit younger. Judah says to Tamar, listen, I'm going to give you my third son, but he's not old enough to marry yet. So if you'll just live in my household and uh, when he grows up, you guys can get married and you can have children. Okay, fine. Well, remember what happened was uh, it got to the point where the kid was old enough and Judah kept ignoring the situation. And so Tamar says, here's what I'm going to do. She came up with this plan. It wasn't a good plan, uh, you know. But she came up with this plan. She said, oh, 
I will go, you know, she found out there was a day when Judah and his, uh, I guess his uh, executive assistant were traveling up country and they were going to go check on their sheep shearers. It was the time of shearing, it says. And so she went ahead of them, found a wide spot in the road, and she set up camp there dressed in the dress of a prostitute. And when Judah and his uh, assistant came by, his servant came by, Judah, the scripture says, Judah turned aside to her. And then he, uh, he basically started negotiating the price. He said, how much does it cost? And she said, well, uh, what do you have? And he said, well, I could give you a kid from my flock. You know, a kid, kid goat or a lamb. And she said, fine, but you don't have it with you, so what are you going to give me in pledge so that I can hold it and pledge until you come back and pay me? And he says, well, I... I um, what do you want? And she says, here's what I want. I want you to give me your signet ring. I want you to give me your shul. And I want you to give me your staff. And so he did that and they did their thing and he went on. He sent the kid back with his servant. They came back to where she was and he couldn't find her. He went to the town, the village that was nearby. And they said, he said, where's the village prostitute? And they said, we don't have any village prostitutes. What are you talking about, man? We ain't got no village prostitutes here. It's not that kind of town. And he looked all over. He couldn't find her. So finally, he went back to Judah, and he said, Judah, she's gone. I can't find her. I don't know what to tell you. And he said, well, I guess she'll, she wants to get paid. She'll show up eventually. Well, so they go back home. About four months transpires, the Scripture says. And some of the servants come to Judah secretly, and they say, Judah, you got a problem, man. He says, what's the problem? He says, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, she's pregnant. She's starting to show. And Judah, in his righteous indignation, he says, bring her here. Let's burn her. Well, Tamar was way ahead of him. She comes before Judah, and uh, he says, tell what, what in the world's going on here? You're going to have to explain yourself. And she says, the man by whom I'm pregnant owns this signet ring and this shul and this staff. And Judah said, can I have the room, please? <laughs> you can imagine this guy, whoa. And again, he says to her, you are more righteous than I am because I failed in my obligation to you and that child became Perez, that's mentioned here. And so these elders say, may Perez, may your offspring be like Perez of Tamar. What? What are you, are you giving me a blessing like that? What in the world? Well, Perez was in the line of David. He was in the line of Jesus. And I won't go into it too deeply, but I just tell you this, at the very end of chapter 4 in the book of Ruth, you'll see there a very small genealogy. And you'll notice in that genealogy that there are 10 generations prior to David. The scripture says that if a child is produced illegitimately, this is, we're talking about ancient Israel, right? 
If a child is produced illegitimately, that line will be unclean for 10 generations. David was the 11th generation from Perez. Making it possible for him to be the ancestor of Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool? Now, I want to ask you a question about the book of Ruth. You've been here, most of you have been here, we've been studying the book of Ruth and going through it. The book of Ruth is about redemption. It's about redemption. But who is the object of redemption in the book of Ruth? Anybody? You may be tempted to say it's Ruth. Ruth and Boaz are the main characters, but they are not the subject of the book. The object of redemption in the book of Ruth is Naomi. In fact, let me say this. The book of Ruth is the equivalent of the parable of the prodigal son in the New Testament. Because it was Naomi who went into a far country and lost everything she had. It was Naomi who, when she returned to Bethlehem, the people, her friends and acquaintances from before, they came and greeted her and they said, oh, it's a great day, it's a blessed day because... Naomi's, Naomi means pleasantness because pleasantness has returned to Bethlehem. And you remember Naomi rebukes them and she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Don't call me pleasantness anymore. From now on, you call me Mara. You call me bitterness because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Now, I'm going to say something. As I have lived my life, I have encountered people, uh, and in fact, it seems like I run into them more and more all the time, who are like Naomi. What they envisioned early in life, what they dreamed about, what they hoped for, never developed. And they carry with them pain, bitterness, like Naomi. They carry with them the disappointment of failed dreams, failed hopes. And it could be multiple of things. It could be, you, you take your pick. It could be when, you know, I, 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 as a young person, I got married and I thought my marriage, my family was going to be so beautiful. I thought it was, you know, I had this picture in my mind of what it was going to be, and it's turned out nothing like that. In fact, I'm not even married anymore. I've been married multiple times, or, and my children have been a disappointment to me. They, they've not grown into anything that I envisioned that I had hoped for. Um, you know, it's just... My career, I, I thought that, you know, when I started out, man, I had these great plans, and now I'm doing nothing that I'm really excited about. It's just not what I had hoped for. And, they, and you know, a lot of times we, we maybe look in the mirror and we say, you know, just call me Mara. Just call me bitterness. 
But in case you hadn't figured it out, the object of the redemption in the book of Ruth is about Naomi. It's about her. You'll notice, just a couple of clues through the book, you'll notice that twice uh, Ruth returns with grain. And you'll notice something very curious. Both times that it's mentioned, Ruth, uh, Naomi takes the majority of the grain and leaves Ruth a little bit that's left over. When Boaz shows up at the city gate, he, know, he says, you know what? We've got to redeem the land that belonged to Elimelech and Naomi. And again, I don't want to step on whoever's uh, the next week in the, the final part of chapter 4, but let me show you something else. In chapter 4, when Boaz and Ruth have their first child, at the birthing table, that baby is taken from Ruth and given to Naomi. It says it's put in her lap to raise as her own. Now, again, that's, that's like totally foreign to us. We can't understand that. It was common then. And what happened was that Naomi came to a place where God redeemed her. You see, she had come, when she first returned to Bethlehem, she, had, she came to the erroneous conclusion, my life is over, God is finished with me, God has given me nothing but bitterness, and this is my lot in life, is to live with bitterness and disappointment. And yet, the truth of the matter was that God wasn't finished with the story yet. God had a plan for her. She couldn't see it because she was so consumed with her own vision of the circumstances that surrounded her. I'm guessing there's people probably in this room who have had similar experiences. And can I say to you, God is not finished. He's not finished with you yet. Whatever you're going through, no matter how deep, how dark it is, that's not the end of the story. And like Naomi, we need to have our vision expanded. We need to look above, beyond the circumstances that we're involved in And we need to learn to put our trust in the Lord, to put our confidence in Him. Because you see, God had a plan. Think about the what happened to their child, Ruth and Boaz's child. His name was Obed. It was David's grandfather. God had a plan. But Ruth forgot that God had a plan and because she was only looking at what was immediately in front of her. God's given me bitterness. I want to ask you if you would uh, pray with me and Andy's and band's going to come up. And here's what I want to ask you, just to consider this. And to just maybe pray this prayer. God, Help me to see that you have a plan. Help me to see 
that the things I'm going through or have gone through in the past, that's not the end of the story. God, help me to understand that your redemption, you're taking something that's scarred, not valuable, and turning it into something amazing is exactly what you do. Again, I want to just say to you, if you're here this morning and you find yourself in that position, would you simply cry out to God? Just speak to him in the quietness of your heart and just say, Lord, I need your redemption. I need you to take what's messed up and make it beautiful. Only you can And if you prayed that this morning and there's some things going on in your life, I want to pray for you. I mean, every head is bowed. And I want to just, would you just slip up your hand if that is your prayer this morning? Just a signal to me. All right, thank you, thank you. Let me pray for you real quick. God, those who lifted their hands, I don't know what the situation is, but you certainly do, Lord. And you certainly are waiting for us to return to you so that you can redeem what we have messed up. God, give these strength, give them courage, give them hope to trust in you despite everything that is an appearance. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.